Hi, my name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Molly Keck. And we are with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. On this episode of Bugs by the Yard, we are continuing with our insect as products or creating products. The one that we're going to talk about today is the silkworm. And this is something that has been around for a really, really, really long time, (laughs) which I didn't realize how long silk has really been used. You hear about it in history and you hear about the Silk Road in ancient China, but the archaeologists have found a cocoon that was dated between 4,000 and 3,000 BC. Wow. That was just a cocoon that they actually found, which that was very impressive. But then there's also reports of things that are being found, like there was a pictures of stuff, silk or a cocoon or something like that, that is known to be over 6,000 years old. I guess I never really thought about it being around for that long of a period of time. Yeah. It's a big thing. China, of course, is where this became popularized, I guess, and where it was discovered. There is a legend, which who knows if it's true or not, because it's a legend. (laughs) There is a legend that says that silk was initially discovered in about 2700 BC, of course, in China. And the Chinese empress Li Zhu, she apparently had a silk cocoon, which why it would drop in her tea is completely beyond me, but a silk cocoon drops into her tea and the cocoon starts to unravel. And then she picks it up and discovers that they can make silk thread out of this. And so then her husband gifts her a grove of mulberry trees. And then she and her women start learning how to make silk, I guess, or produce silk on a mass basis. Is it true? I don't know. I've heard that too before. That sounds really familiar. Unless there's other stories where things fall into your tea. Doesn't some <laughs> fall into the tea in Mulan too, when they're all sitting together? I can't remember. It might. I feel like there's a scene in the real person version of it. So the silkworms then are native to China. And I guess that's where it all, why it all started there. They are. The, the silkworm that is the main one, and it actually to this day produces 95% of the silk that is used in commercial production. The silkworm is Bombyx mori, is its genus species, and it is from China and it feeds exclusively on mulberry. This is like the thing of China, they have this silkworm that's native there. They have areas where they can grow mulberry. And so here we are with that. But since they have been doing sericulture, which is essentially the production of silk or farming the silk from these silkworms, it's completely domesticated now. Think about cats and dogs being domesticated. This silkworm, this particular species, no longer 
exists in the wild. It only oh, wow. lives in cultures within these farms where they farm the silk. It's like cows, they're livestock. They're not. So, yeah. That's I crazy. Mean, again, you know, we're taking advantage of animals that they have whatever product that we want. And it's just very, very cool. But of course, this is a moth that it turns into. And apparently the females are no longer capable of flying. I don't know if that's like another thing that after it's been domesticated, you know, they have bred them to not be able to fly away. That way they don't escape. Yeah. Or like bagworms, the females degrade back into a less than even a larva. They don't have wings and they're like grub like glob. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're closely related and that's what all those things do. They have, of course, a complete life cycle. So egg, larva, pupa, and then the adult. With the eggs, they have them laying these eggs and then they transfer the larvae into rearing chamber or incubation room or whatever. And they, they do it by hand. Think about little tea, tiny baby caterpillars. When they first come out of the egg, they're tiny and they're black in color and they're really hairy. But then when they molt into the next stage, they shed the hairy exoskeleton and they end up turning out to be really white caterpillar that doesn't have any hair on it whatsoever. By the time they reach, I think it's the fifth instar that they have. The interesting thing that I thought they have these frames that they created, they call the process mounting. So when the larvae are getting ready to pupate, which, you know, I mean, if you've ever watched caterpillars, when they're getting ready to pupate, they start kind of wandering around yeah. and maggots do the same thing, but they're, they're not eating anymore. And they're kind of doing that shuffling around and whatnot. And so, you know, that they're getting ready to pupate. So when the silkworms start to do that wandering stuff, Again, by hand, they transfer them into these little mounting racks that they have. And it's just like these little individual chambers on this huge, big square thing. And they put one larvae per square. And then that is where that larvae is going to start spinning their cocoon. How do they get them to stay in the little cubby. I mean, I, I couldn't find that information. They're wondering around, why is it that they stay in there when you stick them in that little cubby? But maybe they get them like at the right time when they don't want to leave anymore. Like once they go, they've know? been doing this for thousands of years. It's quite possible. They know the exact moment. <laughs> they <laughs> they figured it out by now. Who are we to question them? Exactly. <laughs> So they start spinning the silken cocoon around their body. I have this vision of them twisting their head around and flinging it around because these silkworms are actually creating the silk from glands that are in their head, oh. which is different. We think of spiders and they create silk and it comes out of the tip of their abdomen. It's a little bit different when we're talking about caterpillars because it comes from the head and they have these silk glands that essentially are attached, I think somewhere with the salivary glands mm -hmm. and they are going to produce different kinds of proteins 
And when they come into contact with the air, so they're kind of spitting it out. And when it comes into contact with the air, it hardens into the silken thread. And the majority of what it's made up of is called fibroin or fibroin. One of the two, I don't know. I'm going to pronounce it fibroin because that makes sense with fiber. Yeah. But then they have a second protein at the same time that is sticky. And so that kind of wraps around it and kind of keeps it all in one thing. And that is called Saracen that plays into the process later on. So they're spinning this out of their head. And so when they're spinning their cocoon, they're making their head go around in a circle. So they actually get it kind of looping around their body. Like they lasso themselves almost. Right. So they're, they're trying to protect themselves in the cocoon. The cocoons can be anywhere from white to yellow, depending on the actual silkworm, as well as the diet that it's on, which I found that weird because it's like they eat mulberry leaves. Mm -hmm. Are some mulberry leaves different than others that it causes it to be more yellow than white? Is it only one species of mulberry that they feed on or anything in like the mulberry genus or family or I, maybe, maybe there's multiple species that they'll feed. Yeah, on. that might be that they have like different tannins or something in the plant. We're going to get a lot of comments on this podcast. Like you guys don't know what you're talking about. You need to tell us more <laughs> or we know the answer, <laughs> which is fine. Let me know because I'm learning too. We can't know everything about every bug. Obviously, if you are a silk producer and you're trying to harvest these cocoons, they really like the white cocoons as opposed to the yellow because they're easier to dye and they don't have to bleach them and all of that good stuff. The thing that completely blew my mind, the cocoon of the silkworm is about the size of a cotton ball. So get that in your head. That's bigger than I would have thought. Yes, but the silk fiber that makes up the cocoon, it's a single strand and it can measure up to 1.6 kilometers in length. So since we are in the United States, that is 5,249 feet. That's insane. Which a mile is 5,280 feet. So it's more than a mile. No, it's just like shy of it. 31 feet short of a mile. Crazy. One strand. Holy moly. That is so crazy. I imagine these strands are very, very, very thin. How many cocoons does it take to make like a shirt? There is 2,500 or 2,500 cocoons to produce a pound of silk. Oh, that's, that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot. (laughs) Huge amount. So nowadays, of course, stuff is automated and they have machines that can unravel and, you know, re-ravel the stuff. This all used to be done by hand. Could you imagine unraveling almost a mile of silk? That is not a job I would want to have personally. No. (laughs) So where things get crazy And probably people start getting upset because in recent years, PETA is very concerned about the silk production and they have been trying to change different things with it. But when the 
moths are emerging out of the cocoons, they are obviously going to break open the cocoon. And so then you don't have that single fiber. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they steam or boil the cocoons, which kills the pupae that are inside of them. And that boiling and steaming also will get rid of that gummy Saracen. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier to unravel. So, cause the Saracen essentially makes that cocoon kind of stick together. So it's not just kind of going all over the place. So they have to have two kind of different production systems, one to get the silk and then one to continue to breed them because you're killing what's going to make more of it. Interesting. After they boil them, they kill the pupae and then they are going to essentially start unraveling that after they get all of that sticky gummy stuff off of their body. And then they are going to usually twist more than one strand together. And depending on how thick of a strand that they want, it may be, you know, two, it may be 20. It just really depends on what they're actually making with that. So there is a more recent process that does not boil. They actually cut open the silk Mm -hmm. cocoon and extract the pupae so they don't end up killing them. But the problem with that is one, you don't get that continuous fiber. So you have a really long strand, you get shorter fibers and it still has that sticky stuff on it. And so Mm -hmm. the silk isn't as fine or as high a quality as the other process, but it is a possibility. It can't be cleaned or they couldn't take it in the tinier fiber pieces and steam it then. They can, but it also, if you think about when insects are getting ready to emerge out of their cocoon, you know how it starts to kind of harden and everything that is usually what happens. And so then it's harder to get rid of that hard, sticky part. I'm understanding now why silk is so expensive. Yes. Especially really good quality, smooth, beautiful silk. Yeah. They're going to sort after they have the thread, they sort out, you know, the higher quality versus the lesser quality with cocoons. They also have some that they will throw out before they process them because might have mold growth on it or holes. So they get rid of those. They reel it up onto these, think of a spindle from like Cinderella Mm -hmm. or Sleeping Beauty. They've got the little spindle and then they put it on the wheel. That's kind of what's in my brain. It can be anywhere from two strands to 20 strands, depending on the thickness that they want there to create just a single strand for them to then go and create a textile. Do they dye the strands after they have made what they're going to make, or do they dye it and then put it on those spindles? That process, putting it on the spindle is called reeling. And then once that is done, They will twist it into viral circles. So kind of tightening the stuff. And then that's when they dye it. Okay. So they dye it before the fabric is made. So it's kind of similar to yarn. Mm -hmm. They make the fiber on the wheel and then they spin it to tighten it and then they dye it. And then you can use that to knit stuff, whatever you knit for history here. 
talked about the Chinese empress. We do know that the silk and sericulture were first found in ancient China because that's where the silkworm is and that's where the mulberry is. And they tried to keep a monopoly on it. Mm -hmm. They didn't want other people to have their technique, their silkworms, their mulberries, knowing how to do this process. The first woven silken cloth was actually found by archaeologists. It dates back to 3630 BC. And that was used to wrap the body of a child. So it was kind of like a, a shroud. Yeah. Which silk is a extremely strong fiber and it is durable and it's actually really good at preserving itself. Obviously, if they're finding silk that's been mm-hmm. around for over what, four or 5,000 years. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. So the first uses of silk, of course, it's fabric, but it's not only fabric because it was this gorgeous, very soft, it drapes beautifully. It's kind of a status symbol. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. at first in China, only the emperor and his close relatives were able to wear silk. They expanded that to also high-ranking military officials And then later on in later years, anyone was allowed to wear silk clothing from royalty to peasants. And depending on cost limitations, Mm -hmm. obviously it's going to be more of a higher class thing because peasants aren't going to really be able to afford the fabric. Yeah. Plus I feel like silk absorbs dyes and it's like the color is so vibrant yes. that that would be a, you would want to show that off. And so, you know, peasants are going to be wearing like bland colors because they're digging around in, you know, manure and stuff like that. And, um, but that would, I think that would be another reason why royalty and very rich people would want these really bright colors. I wonder if it does absorb color better and it shows up differently than when you dye cotton or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's certainly shinier. Oh yeah, definitely. So silk is used as currency. Mm -hmm. They are using that textile as money and they had government employees that were paid their salaries in silk. We had farmers that were required to pay their taxes in not only grain, but also in silk. (laughs) They're using this as money. Then the government officials would use silk as the diplomatic gifts to other countries. They also not only used silk for fabric making, but they also used it for strings of musical instruments. Mm-hmm. And then they also used it for fishing lines. Silk cloth was also used as paper before <laughs> the Chinese invented the paper that we typically use now. Wow. They invented our paper too. Yeah. So we have China hoarding as much silk as they can, but we had other people in the world that were seeing these. So they're giving stuff to people that they're having diplomatic relations to China starts to really bulk up on the trade. And this is where the silk road came Mm -hmm. about. So we had populations in Egypt and Persia, Greek and Roman empires that were really 
wanting the silk. And so eventually this trade route was going from China across Asia and clear to the Mediterranean Sea. And it was, I think, 6,000 kilometers long. So it was <laughs> really, really big. So China would be sending stuff like silk, but also tea and different things mm-hmm. like that. And they would get horses and gold and silver and different things. So there's different products going back and forth, depending on if you're you know, traveling from east to west or west to east. Mm-hmm. The mulberry silkworm that is used for this is native to China. And so they actually enforced a ban on the transport of silkworms and their eggs to other countries. So they can kind of keep really everything to themselves, mm-hmm. but anybody mm-hmm. who disobeyed the ban could be faced with the death penalty. I mean, this wow. was like serious stuff. It's like, you're not <laughs> taking our silkworms. It's, and again, this is another legend who knows if it's true or not, but they said that there is a Byzantine emperor that hired some monks to smuggle silkworm eggs out of China in about 500 AD. And so they had these bamboo walking canes that they used and they put the silkworm eggs (laughs) inside of the bamboo. And they took those from China to Constantinople. And they also somehow learned the process of sericulture. Then that started leading to other countries having the ability to make silk. Have we imported silkworms into the United States? I don't know. I didn't look that up. I feel like I've heard that and that they became kind of invasive or something. And so they had to control them. I might just be making that completely up. I'm Googling. Okay. Oh, there we go. Silkworms were first imported to Virginia as early as 1613 but efforts to build businesses around them in American colonies, such as Georgia, South Carolina, and Pennsylvania were only marginally successful. Ooh, my second result on Google, the title is how one man ruined America and left us with millions of worms in his wake. There you go. (laughs) If that isn't a great title, I don't know what is. (laughs) That is fantastic. Oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> Truvalo. I feel like this this is a story I have heard. I just can't, I can't recall it. Everything sounds familiar, but it just doesn't, I don't know it. He's a Frenchman. This said, uh, oh, oh, okay, here we go. So this all makes sense now. The story, of course, the clickbait story that I just clicked on. <laughs> the gypsy moth. Which, oh, that's what it dun, is. Dun, dun, it dun. <laughs> the yes. gypsy moth has been the bane of Northeastern and Midwestern U.S. for over a century. It was originally introduced into the U.S. as a possible ar- alternative to the finicky silkworm, which favors only mulberry leaves. The gypsy moth has a voracious appetite for oak trees, as well as several species of trees of shrubs. And there's a giant list. So all things told, they're going to eat over 300 species of trees. So apparently the, oh, hey, yeah, there you go. The man was Etienne Leopold Trouvelot, a artist and astronomer 
he introduced them into the U.S. And so now we have gypsy moth here, which isn't really a good thing because they eat so much. You know, that's kind of a benefit of the silkworms. I mean, I, yeah, it can be a pain that they only eat mulberry, but they only eat mulberry. Yeah. So when we're thinking about things, that's contained somewhat. Mm -hmm. If you're introducing another moth species that eats 300 species of plants, then that could certainly lead to some problems. So that's the story that I remember. They were trying to replicate the silk moth, but they had the gypsy moth because we have silk moths, right? Or do the silk moths that we have, like the Saturnids, are they also silkworms or we just call them silk moths? We just call those silk moths. So the, I think the silkworms are the Bombux moths, that genus, Mm -hmm. but there are other moths that also produce silken cocoons. It's just that they're not as prolific at silk spinning. They're, they're not the, we can commercialize and exploit them, I guess. I'm sure plenty of people have tried and they've realized that the silk worm is the one to go with, not anybody else. Right. And we were mentioning this a little bit earlier before we started recording. There are a bunch of things that actually produce silk. So silkworms, like I said, are the major insect that are used to produce the silk for textiles. But there's a variety of other insects, arthropods, and other animals we have some that are called raspy crickets, honeybees and bumblebees. The larvae will produce silk to strengthen the cells that they pupate in. Bulldog ants that will spin cocoons to protect themselves during pupation. Weaver ants. We have web spinners, which we actually have those in Texas. They actually have silk glands on their front legs. So their front legs, I think they look like Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, they're they do. all bulgy. Some other insects that create silk. We have hornets, we have silverfish, mayflies. The surprising one for me was thrips. Mm-hmm. Leaf hoppers can produce silk nests under the leaves where they live that protect them against predators. I always think of bark lice that always make this wrap it around the trees, right? We have mm-hmm. beetles, lace wings, fleas, different types of flies, midges, And then there's also parasitic wasps. So the braconids and stuff, they'll use silk cocoons for pupation. So basically pretty much not, not all, but, but the majority probably of insects produce silk in some way, just not in the massive, strong, long strands that the silkworm does. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about a, a flea (laughs) cocoon, it's, it's going to be tiny compared to (laughs) the silkworm cocoon. So I can definitely see where you wouldn't want to be unspinning a flea cocoon. Yeah. And then there are other animals that produce silk as well. We have, let's see, there's a muscle that will create silk to bond itself to rocks. Of course, spiders, we, we all know mm-hmm. spiders making that for their webbing. There is a crustacean that uses silk to make a nest out of kelp blades. There's a carp that uses a component of silk to attach their eggs to rocks. Then of course we have spider mites that make webs. We're all familiar with that. And then, you know, we were talking about the goats that have been genetically modified 
to produce extractable silk proteins in their milk. Are those goats replacing silk worms? I or is that what the hope was? No, I definitely need to look more into that because that just sounds crazy to me. And it I want to like know how that works. Bonkers. <laughs> just weird. So we also have silk spreading into different countries. Obviously somebody smuggled something out at some point. Mm-hmm. We also had Japan get a hold of silkworms and the process because the kimonos that they typically wore, those are made out of silk and it, you know, they're, they're beautiful. I love kimonos, but silk is one of the world's oldest natural fabrics. And still today it is essentially produced the way that it was all those years ago, they have automated some of the stuff. So we don't have to hand unwind and wind back up cocoons. So for those people that are like, but what about the moth? Aren't they pollinators? And I bet you those silk moths as the, I mean, sorry, silk worms, when they become a moth, like you said, the females don't even fly. The males probably don't even feed on anything. So they're not pollinating. Their job is just to produce more offspring. That's exactly it. So the males and females, they only live about a week in the adult stage and they, they don't even eat. Yeah. So the males die after they mate, and then the females will die after they lay eggs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the crane flies that we get, you know, or mayflies, even they emerge out, they mate, they lay eggs, they die. Yeah. And that's essentially their life cycle. So it's not like we're I don't know, needing to provide them some good life because they're going to be dead anyway. (laughs) They're just worried about passing on genetic information and moving on. Right. We're not like annihilating a really important pollinator by steaming these these, uh, silkworms to try to get the silk from them. Oh, and to tie in to what we talked about last time or uh, previously, there are some places that they actually will take the pupa that they have killed after they unwind the silk and they'll send those to various places and they'll use them as food. Oh, cool. Hey, then they're not wasting them. And that's fantastic. 100% useful. Yeah. That is the, the long and the short of, I guess, silkworms and silk and Now you know why it's super expensive. Yeah. (laughs) Now I don't feel so bad about, you shouldn't feel so bad, I guess, about spending all that money because it's a lot of effort by both the moth and the people. Yes, exactly. There's, There's a lot of stuff going on there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bugs by the Yard. We hope that you learned something new because I certainly did. And if you have more questions on entomology or insects, you can visit extensionentomology.tamu.edu. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.